This is the CQ University Australia podcast, where we talk to some of the university's interesting characters. Welcome to the Grapevine. Um, today we're talking to Professor Andrew Taylor Robinson, who is a professor at CQ University. Um, can you just tell us about your role here at the university? I have a dual role. One is to, in terms of learning and teaching, where I teach into the uh, pathology and medical sciences program, uh, which is rolled out by the School of Health, Medical and Applied Sciences. And also I have a research uh, portfolio, which uh, I am professor of immunology uh, and uh, hematology within the university, but my m research focus is on infectious diseases. And I have a, a an interest in uh, mosquito transmitted infectious diseases as my primary research interest. Okay, so that's arboviruses um, in the technical term. Um, partly arboviruses. Partly. Uh, my, historically, my research interest uh, started out from my PhD days on malaria, which is not a virus, that's actually a parasite, but is also transmitted by uh, mosquitoes. And I got into, I, you know, I got into viruses uh, when, I, when I moved to Rockhampton, when I moved to CQU, um, because they're just happened also to be transmitted by mosquitoes. So it was a kind of a seamless transmission. But uh, the, So the pathogen is different, but the, the means by which it's passed from one person to another by the bite of an infectious mosquito is similar. So it's, it seems to be a, a reasonable leap from one to another for me. For me. Okay. So what is your, um, I suppose, pet project at the moment or pet research? <laughs> pet research. <laughs> well, um, as I said, w going back to actually when I started my PhD, I, I worked on malaria, uh, which, is trans which is the parasite plasmodium, which is found inside uh, red blood cells in, in, the human, in the human being, infected human being. And I worked on that for... 20 odd years, very narrow focus of, mala of malaria research, looking at the immune, the human immune, immune response to malaria. Uh, and I was doing that quite happily um, in a very narrow focus until I came to Rockhampton uh, in 2012. I remember vividly I came uh, halfway through the uh, London Olympics because I, I I took my kids to a couple of events and halfway through the Olympics I hopped on the plane, came to Rockhampton and uh, saw the rest of the Olympics on uh, local TV in Rockhampton. So it was a bit of a transition. So I remember that distinctly. <laughs> uh, and when I came to Rocky, it was that, it was that question of um, what do I do which is of regional and rural relevance? What do I do which is important to the people of central Queensland? And malaria was less of, a, less of an issue uh, and I realised that oh, we had mosquito-transmitted diseases here, and dengue was an issue in the tropical north of uh, Australia, especially around Cairns and uh, Townsville. But uh, I hit upon a... Uh, and I, I do work on dengue as well, but I hit upon a uh, very fertile uh, research collaboration with a, a very learned gentleman uh, from the um, Queensland uh, University of Technology, and also out of uh, QIMR in Brisbane, uh, working on lesser-known uh, viruses which are transmitted um, uh, by mosquitoes in Australia. And some of these, some of these, you'll. 
be aware of, perhaps such as Ross River uh, fever mm -hmm. and uh, Murray Valley encephalitis, uh, for which there are well-known diagnostic tests now, not so much a few years ago. Uh, and because of the prevalence, of the, because these tests are available, people do get diagnosed more quickly. But there's a whole raft of other viruses which we know of, at least 75, uh, which for which there are no, uh, which we believe are transmitted from between humans by mosquitoes, but for which there are no uh, uh, commercially available diagnostic tests. And we, we think that they're, they're at, um, the primary cause of um, a significant percentage of what would be termed as undiagnosed uh, febrile illnesses. So people having a fever, flu-like symptoms, um, which for which they'll rock up at their GP and uh, there will be no proper diagnosis. So um, this is a sort of uh, an issue which we're looking into at the moment. I'm quite amazed that there's 75 other ones that we don't really hear about. Well, uh, I'm sure we, <laughs> without catastrophizing, I'm sure, I'm sure we hear about the ones which are the, probably the most significant. But, but uh, our, our concern is that because of global warming, we're getting, uh, there's a change, climate change, there's a change in the weather patterns. Uh, so what we're seeing is perhaps more, more, more rain in places which we uh, hadn't hitherto uh, seen such rain in, in central and uh, northern Australia. Uh, and because of where you get rain, you get, breed, you get breeding of mosquitoes. And when you get mosquitoes, you get tr more transmission of uh, pathogens, such, such as these uh, uh, viruses. So we see it as a, as a potentially larger issue in future. And combined with that uh, change, climate change, you're also getting the Commonwealth government having a push for uh, uh, an expanded population of the tropical north. Uh, uh, to do with uh, industry and uh, businesses. You can see the, the mining investment in the north, but not just that agricultural investment in future as well. So there's been a government uh, white paper uh, in the last year or so about uh, ex uh, expansion into the northern Australia. So, And because of that, potentially, you're getting a, 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 re, um, a relocation of a... Uh, immunologically naive population uh, moving from wherever, wherever else in Australia, from the metropolitan yep. areas to uh, a, a places where they would become into close contact with uh, infectious uh, mosquitoes carrying these uh, potentially quite debilitating uh, infections. So with climate change, are we going to see more of these sort of viruses uh, moving down south as well? Uh, potentially. I mean, again, I don't want to catastrophize, yeah. but uh, what, what we're seeing, it's a bit like uh, the, the cane toad moving, moving south. It, it, it's happily, happening, you know, kilometre by kilometre, year on year. And what you're absolutely, you're absolutely right, Priscilla, because um, the, the mosquito which transmits um, dengue, uh, which also transmits Zika, is called uh, Aedes uh, aegypti. Well, that's the principal one, and uh, what that is—that is—you um, do see that in uh, Australia. And what you're actually seeing, it, it, the the um, vector biology people who actually uh, map the distribution of mosquitoes uh, um, in Australia, it is gradually creeping further south. 
Uh, and my, my own work has shown that uh, people, people who live in uh, regional and rural, um, central and um, northern Australia are aware of dengue transmission. Uh, especially in the hot spots uh, in and around Cairns, for instance. They're, so they're aware of uh, how mosquitoes can breed in very small uh, you know, uh, plant pots or, or whatever, in, in, in stagnant water. So um, they, they have an awareness of that, but there, there is an issue that as the, as the distribution of uh, the mosquito um, spreads further south, People in more metropolitan areas, in southeast Queensland, for instance, um, are, are far less aware. So we, we, we've done uh, uh, questionnaires and surveys and found out that actually people say, uh, not picking on Brisbane, but people people say living in Brisbane are far far less aware of of uh, mosquito transmission and what to do to prevent it on a local level compared to people say living in Townsville or living in Cairns. So um, at a public from a public health perspective, I think that in future years there'll be an onus on uh, different local health authorities to to have a focus on um, educating people because obviously prevention is better than cure. Yeah. Just getting to that. So I mean at the moment we're um, you know we're seeing a you know a lot of preventative methods that we that we use you know you know as you say you know no water in you know, flower pots and things like that mm. and stopping the breeding cycle but where are we heading with the actual immunology um, sector of this well in terms of the immune res- the immune response underpins vaccine design so if we understand how to to uh, boost the immune response in an appropriate way so we get the a good response to uh, an infectious agent, whether it, whether it be uh, a parasite or a virus or a bacterium, um, we we can get uh, we can get good responses because sometimes in the immune response we get uh, inappropriate or pathological responses. Uh, so uh, that's the, that's the whole idea of immunisation. So we we, we get uh, uh, protective antibodies for the most part against a particular uh, virus, for instance. Uh, with say with the uh, flu virus, uh, um, so that's largely what my immune, uh, what my immune, what my immune, uh, research into immunity has been about for many years, um, and it's a slow progress against a lot of these pathogens. For instance, malaria, which I've mentioned, I've worked on. Uh, they've been working on a as a community, research community, we've been working on malaria vaccines since the 1950s. Now, I wouldn't, it'd be unfair to say we're no further, uh, we're no closer than we were before because some excellent work has been being done. Indeed, in Australia, some excellent work is being done. So we are, we are closer, but um, it's still a long way off, I would say, so till the time we can actually go to our GP and say, we're going on holiday to, to uh, wherever, can I have a, uh, a prophylactic uh, uh, vaccine to prevent me from getting malaria whilst I'm on, on my nice uh, holiday. Um, in the meantime, of course, people have to take uh, rather sometimes potentially unpleasant uh, drugs uh, to, uh, to, to combat them uh, getting ma- malaria. So in terms of uh, viruses, viruses are, uh, including the, arbo- <coughs> excuse me, including the arbo- arboviruses that you mentioned, are... Um, much simpler organisms uh, much, uh, than 
is the malaria parasite. So that potentially there is uh, some hope against making a vaccine against some of these uh, neglected arboviruses that I that I mentioned. Um, there are some dengue uh, vaccines which are currently being trialled in human beings, and there there is a. Uh, a vaccine which is just coming to commercial availability against dengue, but is it is um, I think the jury is still out about uh, whether it's completely effective or not. Um, so that so yeah, in terms of um, vaccines against dengue, Zika, uh, chikungunya, which is another one of these viruses which you found in Southeast Asia, um, and some of these Ross River fever uh, virus, um, potentially. But there is hope uh, for finding a uh, a vaccine against it. It's just like there has and the, the wonderful example is is polio, for instance, for which it's more or less been eradicated uh, from from the world. So there are some excellent examples of um, vaccine design predicated upon a protective immune response. Okay, so just for our non-science based um, listeners, can you tell us what's actually involved in looking for um, a vaccine and how, how does all that all work? An immune response is um, based upon um, the body recognising um, a foreign particle, a foreign being, recognising the difference between self and non-self. It sounds very complicated. Otherwise, you would make responses against um, you, your, your own, own body. your own body, your mm. own, and that that of course happens uh, with um, some types of uh, inappropriate immune response. And in, and in another example of an inappropriate immune response is our allergies. So you, the the immune response is fooled into thinking that something which is perfectly harmless such as uh, you know uh, grass pollen is something which is uh, which is presenting a threat a danger to the to the to to them and hence they overreact so an appropriate immune response is is recognizing that this this is actually causing a danger to myself and producing a response which is appropriate and proportionate to that. I always say that the best response is produced at the, at the right levels at the right time in the right place. And, and you can either talk systemically about the uh, whole body, or whereas actual fact, most immune responses are very locally targeted in the lymph nodes and the glands of the body, distributed throughout the body. So, you, in terms of making a vaccine, it's a long process from preclinical right through to the end of, of clinical vaccine trials where you're actually testing them in human beings and then um, f um, getting approval to then release that for commercial availability. And that can take years, decades. So, initially, you, you start with... Uh, perhaps work, working on a particular antigen. And now an antigen is one of these uh, uh, fragments of a, 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 a virus or a bacterium. It might be on the, on the surface of a bacterium or, or, a, or a virus, which it's, it's the target which the um, immune response recognises. So it's, you might have heard of things called antibodies of the immune response. So that is the, uh, an antigen 
uh, triggers the production of antibodies. And most hopefully, in, a, in an ideal world, the antibodies are protective and they, they neutralize or they, they block the, the antigen. So uh, a vaccine often is a, is a preparation at its simplest level made out of these uh, particular antigens or, or um, fragments of these antigens which elicit a protective response. Now, it's obviously more complicated than that, and, and a lot of uh, tweaking around with vaccines is, is uh, producing uh, the right antigens, but also um, uh, delivering them in the right way, because uh, as, as you're aware, vaccines can either sometimes be taken on a lump of sugar, which is the nicest way to take them, or they can, you know, you can be vaccinated uh, in, the, in the skin, in, in the dermis, or uh, intravenously, more often than not, or in, in, in the muscle, intramuscularly. Uh, and there are uh, more sophisticated ways of delivery uh, of vaccines uh, becoming more increasingly available. Uh, so that's uh, because some, that's an issue because sometimes if you deliver um, a vaccine by two different routes into the body you get two different types of responses so um, this is the type of thing which is, is looked at but ultimately you down the track which might take several years of, of lots of research globally not just in one laboratory um, you get to a stage where you think right well, let's test this in human beings. And then you have small pilot studies, and often those pilot studies are not actually looking at the protective response. They're just looking to see if there is any aberrant, uh, inappropriate response just in terms of the actual vaccination itself. And then gradually you, you roll that out to a larger, um, a larger uh, cohort of, of people being examined uh, where you're actually challenging them with the particular, uh, exposing them to the particular uh, pathogen, such as whatever virus we're talking about, let's say dengue. So uh, they have to be living in a dengue endemic area. And you see, compared to controls who aren't giving a vaccine, of course there are ethical issues that in that, it's, in that itself, um, you compare whether somebody's ultimately whether somebody gets infected or not if they're giving a given a vaccine. That can take many, many years. In the last couple of years, we've seen Zika mm. come to the fore. You know, it's been all over the media. And is it true to say that they've fast-tracked a vaccine? Can you tell us a little bit of insight into um, Zika and how that differs from what we experience in Australia? Well, Zika's an interesting case because Zika's been known for a long time, since the early 1950s. Yet, it suddenly grabbed the headlines uh, you know, 18 months ago, probably coming up to two years now. Uh, and partly I think that's because of the, uh, the very dramatic images that people saw of the uh, microcephaly, the, the, uh, of the newborn babies. So that was very eye-catching in, in, the, in the media, in the social media. And there was definitely an outburst of, of Zika in, in South America, principally around Brazil. But it, uh, in terms of timing, that came not long before the uh, Rio, de, Rio de Janeiro Olympics. And I think that was um, 
it, that was coincidental, of course, but it, it led to headlines thinking, goodness me, what happens if all these uh, Olympic athletes and their entourage go to uh, Rio and catch this nasty uh, mosquito-transmitted disease? So you can see why that led to headlines. Um, Zika is what, very similar. We mentioned these uh, arboviruses in, in Australia. Uh, Zika was, in many ways is, is not dissimilar. In fact, it's, it's related. But, uh, so, but I don't want to scare, uh, have scaremongering stories about my, what might happen here with some of these other ar- arboviruses I'm working on. But it's, it begs that question, what is the net Zika? Um, and who knows whether that might be uh, one of the 75 neglected ones which I've mentioned here, uh, which, which, which live in Australia. Um, we don't know. Mm. But it's, it's, it's guesswork. Um, um, the vaccine that they mm. um, were working on or have come to fruition, h- how did that come about so quickly? That, that's, that's a good point, Priscilla. Um, everything, unfortunately, in this world comes down to money. And um, because of, I think because of the Olympics, not because it happened in, in Brazil, people were outraged and especially in the United States. The, the United States government, there was a lot of pressure put on them at the time to release a lot of funding which might have gone elsewhere towards toward Zika. And, of course, um, the more money there is, uh, the more research you can do and the more fast-tracking that can become available. Even now, you know, 18 months down the track, we don't have a vaccine as such, but I think there's far more progress being made towards that than would otherwise be the case. So you can make parallels with my own research and, you know, uh, there, <laughs> there is less interest because there isn't, uh, there isn't um, the next Olympics being taking place in, in Townsville. And we, and we know we've got something on the Gold Coast, so maybe uh, the Commonwealth Games coming up, so maybe I should uh, <laughs> spread a story about that. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, but we mentioned Zika. The same was true of the uh, HIV/AIDS uh, pandemic in the in the 1980s, uh, and not to be dismissive of that, there was a huge amount of money globally thrown into uh, into looking at. Uh, treatment, shall we say, against uh, HIV in the 1980s. And it it is true that the treatments now are vastly superior to uh, what were available then. And what we know about HIV AIDS is is, uh, hugely uh, more than we knew then. But there is no vaccine against HIV. Mm -hmm. Uh, But again, huge amounts of money was thrown at that. So... uh, that, that happens. So it's politically driven, dare I say. What do you hope your research um, provides to our world that we're going to be living in in the next 20, 30 years? Well, or it, maybe it's, we're looking more beyond that again. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I suppose we all have an ego, but I, I don't think that on a personal level I contributed a huge amount. I... I, I in terms of making a vaccine against any infectious disease... Um, largely it's it's a global research community effort. Now in terms of making a a vaccine say against malaria it's a 10,000 piece jigsaw and if I've contributed one or two pieces or 
other people consider that, I'd be delighted that I've made that contribution. Um, I think the focus, I should say, has been very much on um, high high level research, if you like, um, high tech research in terms of making vaccines, which definitely is um, um, quite sophisticated molecular research. But in terms of prevention, we mentioned this earlier uh, about um, educating people. In the meantime, um, against a lot of these infect trop uh, tropical infectious diseases, uh, mosquito-borne infectious diseases, low-tech techniques are in many ways, what the only thing we have, but in many ways are, are very effective. We've seen that in, in the last um, 10, 15 years against malaria. Uh, some of the campaigns against malaria to reduce the number of, uh, reduce the incidence worldwide of malaria have been very effective. Just using, um, educating people how to use uh, mosquito nets, for instance. Um, what used to happen in, in sub Saharan Africa is you gave people mosquito nets. Uh, which, uh, you know, people in the, in the Western world had, uh, in developing countries, uh, sorry, developed countries had uh, had uh, often contributed to charity with with the best of intentions, thinking that actually we're doing something terrific for people in in communities in sub-Saharan Africa um, to give to to prevent them from uh, being bitten, uh, but these they weren't people weren't educated to use these mosquito nets, so often they used them for as fishing nets, because they're perfect fishing nets, wonderful. But uh, you know, I, I I wouldn't be. I could slept under a mosquito net. Not the most fun things to sleep under. So educating somebody to do that, um, it's assumed knowledge, I guess. But now we have, and we're seeing we're seeing reductions, significant reductions there. And again, going back to uh, whether it's dengue or uh, some of these other arboviruses in in um, Queensland. Uh, I think education, public education, is, is jolly important in the, in the meantime. Uh, a vaccine would be nice, ultimately, but um, sometimes it's control rather than prevention. What has brought you to this point in, in your career? Did you always think that, you know, you would be investigating mosquito-borne viruses and mosquito-borne diseases and... Do you think yourself as the mozzie man? <laughs> I sometimes get labelled as the mozzie man. I, I think I'm different things to different people. Um, but my, my, uh, my research, in, purely in terms of research, my, my research overlaps um, um, infectious diseases and, it, and immunology. So sometimes, in terms of, say, if I conferences and things like that, sometimes I go to an immunology conference, sometimes I go to an infectious disease conference. I mentioned malaria. My PhD too long ago was on malaria, uh, which is a parasite. So sometimes I went to... So my interest was in parasite immunology. So there was an overlap between the two. So when I went to a parasitology conference, I was seen as an immunologist. When I went to an immunology conference... I was seen as a parasitologist, so it was quite interesting seeing that dynamic evolve. Um, but in terms of my education, I, I was uh, my first degree was in medical microbiology, so that is looking at all sorts. That's, so that's called looking at the the bugs, if you like, which cause infectious diseases, so parasites, worms, uh, bacteria, viruses, all those all those things which cause infectious, nasty infectious mm -hmm. diseases. And I became 
interested in those because of my childhood. My dad worked as a medical microbiologist. His dad worked as a medical microbiologist. In fact, my, my grandfather was um, head of the public health laboratories in Liverpool during the Second World War. So Liverpool was being blitzed by the uh, So you're not Luftwaffe. the only professor in your family? No, unfortunately <laughs> not. Well, I say unfortunately not. It might sound a bit odd to other people, but that was my uh, upbringing. And my, my brother's a professor, and my, my cousin's a professor, and my... Yeah, I think so there are five the, of us currently. <laughs> the Christmas talk over the table would be interesting. Well, actually, it's remarkably dull. We normally talk about <laughs> soccer or <laughs> okay. something like that. But, uh, yeah, the, the talk, it's funny because, um, as I said, my dad was a, a, a medical microbiologist. But uh, dare I say, I don't know whether this is permissible for public broadcast, but his interest was on sexually transmitted diseases. Um, sexually transmitted infections, as I think they're called now, STIs. And as a small boy, of course, this, most of this went over my head because it, the idea, you know, the SEX word sex, it wasn't a case of how you got these things, but my dad was actually interested in a person once they got it. it so, yep. okay. And so my, my mother would be, oh, how, was your, how was your day at work, dear? And he would be talking about taking some swab or... These things stick in your memory. I bet. And it was only later in life that I, I realised the significance of this. But my, my parents so was were, this talk over the dinner table? Yes, very much so, because my parents were actually quite um, conservative in many ways. And my, my upbringing was quite uh, conservative in many ways. But my, my, my parents could absolutely separate professional from personal. So while it was absolutely quite interesting in that regard and it, again it's um, your childhood you only have one childhood and people reflect later in life about uh, you know what a childhood was like but when you're in it more often than not you don't think that's what it is because it's not like going into um, a shop and choosing a lolly you can't put it back and say oh, I'll have another childhood it is what it is and that for me was normal just like you mentioned how many academics around my family but I don't see them as that I just see them as my family and that's what it is so for me that was normal but it got me into thinking about uh, science and biomedical research uh, and that's really you what must took have off a, a genetically in, you know uh, insightful mind or I, I'm not sure wow. Or, you know, you, did you love to investigate things as a kid? Is that, you know, were you, was your head always in a, you know, in Dad's microscope? Or Well, that's a good question, Priscilla. It's, all, it's always that um, issue of, is it nature or is it nurture? Because you, you see, you know, sons of footy players or indeed daughters of footy players these days playing footy. Now, is it because they got the genes to do it or is it because they got the exposure, you know, cricketers beget cricketers and all that stuff like that. Um, politicians become, children of politicians become politicians. Um, I got my first microscope when I was five or six. And, you know, I remember looking at, you know, plucking a hair out of my head and looking at that down a you know, pretty poor microscope, but also, uh, you know, wings of, of flies and stuff like that. And later on, I think my uncle gave me a better microscope when I was nine or ten. And 
you know, I was thrilled with that because that was my birthday present or Christmas present. But um, I don't remember thinking when I was six, wow, I want a, what, what do I want from Santa? I want a, a microscope. But when I was presented with that and shown what to do, that was, that was great. And I suppose it's an immersion. You are immersed in that environment. You do hear people say, you know, when, when their child becomes, follows in the footsteps of a parent, I didn't push them into it. Yes, another example is, you know, actors, children's, children become actors. I didn't push them into it, but you, they grow up in that environment, and I'm no different, I suppose. So whilst um, other people as summer holiday jobs were off stacking shelves in coals or woolies, I was working in a you know, diagnostic uh, uh, pathology laboratory in the hospital. That's extraordinary. You know, when I was, I think I got my first job when I was 15. But uh, I remember rocking up at a, a large, um, one of the largest teaching hospitals in London uh, when, I, uh, when I was probably about 17 or 18. And, you know, they were... Well, I wouldn't say they were short staffed, but they were under the pump. Uh, and they, people obviously take holidays, and they, more often than not, they take holidays in the summer. So I was like the, the newbie, uh, newbie guy. And they, they gave me to, to, to look after me. To I wouldn't say it was an induction, but to look after me. They gave me to the most grizzled, experienced um, technician there who, you know, knew, knew, knew his stuff. But I was put on a faecal bench, which basically meant that I, I spent the next month receiving samples of people, human faeces which had been provided <laughs> by the hospital or by the GPs. And of course, sometimes if they came from um, the, the suburbs, it's not quite like coming from Winton to uh, Brisbane or somewhere, but uh, sometimes if they came from the suburbs, and even it, but in the UK standards, a hot summer's day, and uh, you know they'd rock up a two or three days, a couple of days later, and well, if you've ever given a fecal sample, a stool sample, you'll know it's not the easiest thing in the world anyway. And of course, there's the newbie. I think it was a sort of a real induction for me. And how old were you? I was about um, 17, 16 or 17. And I spent, <laughs> this must, must sound odd, but I, I absolutely loved it. But apart from the fact, occasionally you, you would open one of these containers and of course it had been fermenting and the faeces would splatter, it would burst. And I do occasionally remember getting somebody's you know, an aerosol would land on my glasses. And oh. these were in the days, these days, of course, I think you'd wear, luckily I did wear glasses, even back, back then I was like a blind as a bat. But um, uh, these, in the, these days you'd probably wear protective goggles, like you would certainly uh, teach students to do in an undergraduate lab. But in those days, um, health and safety was perhaps a little bit more, uh, little bit more relaxed. But uh, that was, you know, that was a sink or swim, pardon, pardon the thought there, but that was a sink or swim thing. And after a month, I think I earned my stripes and I thought, well, actually, this, this, this kid's got a bit, you know, he's got something about him. So they moved me up to urine bench. And <laughs> that was so much better. I mean, you know, but, uh, you know, I was, I was as happy as a pig in shit, working with other people's shit. So after that, you know, 
it was I'd got the pardon the pun again. I should have been a comedian. I'm wa- <laughs> I'm wasted in science. Well, pardon the pun. I I was uh, I'd got the bug, and after that it was it was you know. I always say that um, I. People say, "What do you do for a living?" and uh, I feel as I I've never had a proper job because I went to straight out of school. I went to uni as a naive 18-year-old. Well, I was naive. Some people aren't. But I was a naive... I felt very wet, wet behind the ears. Uh, I had washed my hands, luckily. But wet behind the ears, I went to uni. And, of course, I never left. I've been in academia ever since. So I feel in a very privileged position, in a way, because uh, I suppose, like a lot of academics, my job is my... I see it as my, my vocation, for better or for worse. And because of that, my vocation is my passion. I wouldn't quite say it's my hobby, but it kind of verges on that. And I, I see, you mentioned nature and nurture. I see that with my father, who's still in his 80s. Well, no, he, sorry, he's in his 80s, but he still has his passion. And he's still writing editorials and opinion pieces on his research on sexually transmitted diseases. There you go. Uh, a bit scary so uh, yes uh, uh, but absolutely in my grandfather too and I, I see that in my other rallies this passion you know I have passion for other things as well but uh, my, my wife will be pleased to hear <laughs> <laughs> um, talking about your family have you got children? Have, I do. Yeah. yeah, I have three of my own. Yeah. Yes. Can you tell us about them? Yeah, three sexually transmitted diseases <laughs> yes that's right um well, that's the funny thing is that you mentioned nature and nurture. My uh, children, uh, the, young, the youngest has just started uni uh, in the UK, and the, the middle one's uh, just wrapping up for, in, the, in her final year at uni, and uh, the, the last one's now teaching English in Japan, so the eldest one. But they, they, they all studied more in modern foreign, foreign languages at university. So they, their mother, my first wife, was. Um, I, I uh, met her when we were doing our PhDs working on malaria. How romantic is that? For, I saw her, saw her in a lab co- across, a, a, across a laboratory wearing a white lab coat. Yes. Uh, so, but they clearly didn't get the immersion. Maybe, maybe between us we put them off because the, the, the eldest studied uh, German, the middle one studying Spanish, and the uh, the youngest is studying French and Chinese. Wow. So okay. uh, that's interesting. <laughs> but they so. may still be professors. <laughs> <laughs> well, interesting you should say that because I don't put, uh, I wouldn't put any pressure on them. And, you know, pr- what's a professor? It's a title. If you were to meet me socially, if you were to bump into me in the uh, veggie aisle of Coles I would never introduce myself as professor I'm outside the in the university that's I or in academia that's a, a title which I like to think I've earned but in the outside world I actually find for a lot of people they don't know how to react to that and it's quite inhibiting so socially I'm Andrew or uh, as my actually as my youngest once said uh, as she said to me last year dad are you still professor of shitology and that's about that. Just about sums it up about how how my kids feel about me. So, uh, uh, but being professor is not something you aim for, aspire for. It's like kids these days; they want their fifteen minutes of fame. I think you become famous for. I'd like to think most people become famous for actually 
achieving something or doing something. Now, whether that's you know whether that's on the footy pit, footy pitch or being a, an actor, you know, you don't get an Os- you get an Oscar because you you do a terrific film performance, acting performance. You know, you win the Brownlow Medal because you're a star on the footy pitch. Um, you become a professor because hopefully you do some recognised work amongst your peer community, research community and learning and teaching community. But uh, it's not something to... The label is not something in itself, it's not something to aspire to, but it's quite nice. Um, One of the questions we like to ask our podcast guests, is there anything quirky that we should know about you? I think we've found a few quirky bits there, but is there anything else? Quirky? Quirky or interesting. That's something that we may not even, you know, we wouldn't have thought well, Andrew would be involved in or liked or did. It's that old self-awareness thing, isn't it? It would probably be better to ask my uh, family, except they would uh, they'd probably, um, you know, diss me <laughs> more than, probably more that I have to have a thick, thin, thick skin like a rhinoceros. Um, one thing which people if I if I record this podcast people will know one or two people know and most people I have mentioned it to people and it's kind of they're disbelieving is uh, I actually sang on a Queen record you know Freddie Mercury and uh, you kidding those you know Freddie Mercury and his his band in a uh, well they're still going I think under a different format but uh, you know, I say we're not one of their better records, and I am in one of their videos as well. So if you want to see a very youthful Andrew in the 1980s, looking a bit like a dishevelled student, yes, I say. And it, the, the laughable thing is, if you were asked my nearest and dearest, they would say that I sing like a scalded cat, and my my singing is best done in the shower, um, which. It's probably true. I, I, I tend to vacuum and sing or, or sing to 1970s or 80s prog rock when nobody else is, around, <laughs> when nobody else is in the house. Um, but yes, I did sing on it. So I, I actually have a number one international best-selling record. I want, awesome. I want you to know that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. It's been a wonderful chat. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure, Priscilla. Thank you. Like this podcast? Don't forget to rate, review and share with your friends.